you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. Romans 8, we're going to be looking at verse 28, verse 29, and verse 30 together. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Um, If you are a guest with us this morning, we'd love it if you would take a moment to fill out uh, the Connect card. And uh, that's just a a good way for us to um, get to know you, get to know a little bit about you, and get to know um, how we can be praying for you. Uh, And uh, that Connect card goes to um, our staff here and goes to us uh, elders, us pastors, so that we can be uh, in prayer for you. And, um, and we'd love to be in prayer for you uh, this week. And so please take a moment to fill that out by going either to veritasdayton.org connect, or you could fill that out by grabbing one of the connect cards on the uh, welcome table. The welcome table is the table with the uh, black tablecloth out here uh, in the, what's called the Great Hall. So, um, Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Well, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into this. All right, Father, uh, we we give you thanks for your word. Uh, We give you thanks uh, for the reality that it testifies to um, in our salvation in Christ. Uh, We thank you that we don't have to wonder how it is you save your people and and uh, what our salvation consists of, and, and what we must do to be saved. We thank you for giving us your word so that all of this is shown so clearly and so plainly to us uh, for the sake and glory of your name. And we pray that as we enter into this, this study of what salvation even means, uh, that you would bring our hearts to a, a place of assurance and confidence uh, in you, in Christ in your salvation of us in Christ by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray these things in your name, O triune God. Amen. Amen. Well, maybe you've heard the um, little children's game, the little uh, ditty, He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. It's a little game uh, of French origin, which seeks to um, discover by way of uh, superstition whether or not an object of a person's affection returns that like affection. However, I, I wonder how often that game can actually describe our, uh, our level of assurance of God's love for us. How often do some of us go back and forth and wondering whether or not God really loves us, whether or not he's really set his his divine seal of approval and affection and acceptance upon us. Do you you ever go back and forth and wondering in in your heart, wondering about whether or not God has really saved you? Well, it's a new year, it's a new sermon series, and we're calling this sermon series The Unbreakable Chain of salvation, the unbreakable chain of salvation. And really, if we're going to boil it down, what we want to explore in this series is is this. When we talk about God's salvation of us, his saving of us as individuals, what are we talking about? When we talk about God's salvation being applied in our lives as individuals, what do we mean? 
What do we mean? Theologians often call this, this study the order of salvation. The order of salvation. And, and in it, we simply take each of the, the kind of facets uh, of our salvation talked about in the New Testament, and we discover and define and explore each one. Uh, now, one of the clearest texts that talks about this order of salvation is, is Romans 8, 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30. In Romans 28, or Romans 8, 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul is writing to this first century church in Rome about their salvation. And he explains to them the order of salvation in this way. He says that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And we'll skip a little bit. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see these, these particular facets of salvation, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. What do these mean? What do these mean? That's what we want to discover and define and explore this morning and in the weeks to come. Foreknown and predestined means to say that God chose to save and redeem certain individuals before the creation of the universe. And we're, we're going to unpack that one today. Called means uh, to, to speak of the divine summons in the preaching of the gospel. What theologians call the effectual call, wherein God irresistibly calls and draws his predestined people to salvation in the preaching of the gospel. Justified speaks of God's counting us righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. And then glorified speaks of that future day when Jesus returns and gives us resurrection bodies like his own glorious resurrection body, as Paul says in Philippians 3.21. Now this, this, this text, this particular text, Romans 8, 20, uh, or 29 and 30, uh, is, this text is often called the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation. It's a golden chain because it's made up of these different links, okay, if you can picture it. Um, they're seen as, as individual links. These individual links are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. There are these individual links, but they're linked together as one chain. However, I, I, I want to call this the unbreakable chain of salvation because I, I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice that this sequence is inevitable. Each link necessarily follows the previous link in the Apostle Paul's logic. If one is true, then the others certainly follow. Like dominoes, they just all fall down. All those who are predestined will be called. And all those who are called will be justified. And all those who are justified will be glorified. Each link necessarily follows the previous link. The chain is unbreakable. And what's more is the tense in which each of these links is mentioned. Now, you probably noticed that in uh, our English translation uh, that they speak of each of these terms in the past tense. Even the future glorification of the believer is spoken of in the past tense. However, in, in, in the original language, um, the, it, we, it's not in the past tense. It's in what's called the aorist tense. Now, we don't have an aorist tense in the English language, and that's uh, okay, so translators usually just translate aorist tenses in the past tense, and, and I know that's all uh, a little technical. So, so basically, that's all that to say. The aorist tense is no respecter of time. It's no respecter of past, present, and future, and what that means is that your salvation, Christian, each of these aspects of salvation, your full and ultimate salvation 
is as good as done. Even the future application of your salvation is as good as done. So much so that Paul speaks about it in the aorist tense. These links cannot be broken. The salvation that God planned for you in eternity past is a certainty in eternity future. It can't be broken. His plans can't be thwarted. His designs can't be frustrated. This chain is unbreakable. That's why we're calling this the unbreakable chain of salvation. Now, in addition to those kind of introductory comments, I want to say something else. The Apostle Paul here does not mention every link that makes up this chain, okay? Uh, So he, he mentions several links here, but there are other links implied here and other links explicitly mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. And so in this series, as we explore the, the order of salvation, this unbreakable chain of salvation, we're going to, Romans 8, 29, and 30 is going to be kind of like our, our home base. It's going to be our home base. Um, but we're going to make trips out to other texts as well so that we can explore other links in addition to the links mentioned here. So to begin with, this morning, we're going to start with looking at foreknown and predestined. Uh, that's the, the, the first link mentioned. Those are, they sound like two, but it's actually one link. Um, and, and then next week, we're going to look at called and uh, regeneration, or, or the new birth. And so you can see it here. Uh, and then we're going to look at effectually called and regeneration, the, the new birth. Uh, and effectually called, again, is that divine summons that we receive in the gospel. Regenerated means to speak of us being born again by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, like we just sang about a few minutes ago. And then the third link is converted, and and converted is just a a single word uh, that means to say that we repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ, and that's the result of us being born again. Uh, The fact that we're born again then necessarily leads to us being Uh, repentant and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Um, And then after that, we'll look at justified. And this uh, is one explicitly mentioned here in Romans 8. Justified again is uh, God counting us righteous in Christ through faith. Uh, And then we'll make another trip out of the the home base, so to speak, and to look at our adoption. God the Father adopts each of his children as his very own children. He, when God comes to save us, he, he comes to the prison not just to declare us righteous, but he comes with adoption papers. He comes to, to, to adopt us and bring us home as his very own children. And then uh, next, this one is very explicitly Im- implied, uh, but it, it's not uh, explicitly mentioned, and that's perseverance in Romans 8. So then after that, we'll look at the very last link, which is glorified, which is God uh, raising us up and giving us glorious resurrection bodies like Christ's glorious resurrection body uh, at the end of the age. And that is the most certain future of all those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is the most certain future of those who are predestined by the living God. And so uh, this morning... We are going to start with the first link, which is predestined. And, you know, my, my hope in all of this, my hope in, in exploring this, this series with you all, and my hope in, in preaching through this, this order of salvation, this, this golden chain of salvation, is, is really uh, that you would be renewed and refreshed uh, through God's word and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that this text ha- or this, these, this study has the power to do that in your lives because in all reality, it's done that in my life. 
um, about around 12 years ago, when I was a, 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 a new believer, um, I undertook a, a study of the order of salvation. I wanted to know what it meant when we talked about God saving us. And so I undertook the study. I studied the order of salvation, and what I found there set me on fire. It brought me to a place of awe. It brought me to a new level of assurance and joy and confidence in God. It emboldened my evangelism. It made me feel more secure, more joyful, more at peace, more at rest. And I believe that this study of these doctrines can do the very same thing in your life. In other words, I want us all to go, to go from being those Christians who, 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 who do that thing, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, to becoming Christians who can say with utter confidence, oh, how he loves me. Let me count the ways. Predestination, the effectual call, regeneration, justification, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. I want you to be so utterly confident and assured and renewed and set ablaze with a passion for God's saving grace. That's the goal with the sermon series. I want you to be in awe of God, and I want you to be set ablaze with a passion for his saving grace. So let's, let's dig in. Again, we're starting with the very first link this morning. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we are looking at the first link foreknown and predestined. Again, it's really one link, so we're taking them together. So predestination, and uh, this shouldn't be controversial at all. So uh, we're just going to dig into this. All right. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. You guys know Merle Haggard? Anyone? The first thing I remember knowing is a lonesome whistle blowing and a young'un's dream of growing up to ride on a freight train leaving town not knowing where I'm found. No one could change my mind, but Mama tried. I love Merle Haggard, and I love his justly famous song, Mama Tried. I used to love this song. I used to listen to it on repeat. I had Merle Haggard's greatest hits, and I would just listen to the, the greatest hits of Merle Haggard over and over and over and over again. I love Merle Haggard, and, and as I was thinking about this song recently, I was thinking that in many ways, this, this described my life, my parents. My parents did right by me. My parents, they tried to raise me the best they could. They tried to lead me to Christ. They tried to make me a good citizen. They truly tried. But prior to my conversion, no one could change my mind. One and only rebel child from a family meek and mild. My mama seemed to know what lay in store. Despite all my Sunday learning toward the bad, I kept on turning until mama couldn't hold me anymore. Oh, Merle, we love you. Now, why would we start with such a marvelously magnificent masterpiece of classic country delight? I, I think sometimes we as, as Christians can view our God as a, a mama-tried kind of God, a mama-tried kind of God. When it comes to our salvation, 
in the salvation of those that we love and evangelize, we can often fall into the trap of thinking that God is trying his best to save each and every single individual, but just can't pull it off. As one, of the best, uh, as one best-selling author put it, he said, even God has a hard time keeping the chaos in check. But now, is, is, that, is that true? Is God trying, is, is that what the Bible teaches? Is God trying really hard to, to work things out in this world, to save his people? Is God trying? And think about the implications for uh, how, how, the way that we answer that question. Think about the implications. If God is merely trying Who's to say he won't fail? Of course, this, this would lead to despair. What if God is, is trying to save us, but in the end just can't pull it off? Wouldn't our confidence in him and our assurance of our salvation take a major hit? Or, or, or perhaps a, a, another outcome might result. Perhaps we might begin to think that, that God is merely trying, and then that perhaps our salvation has something to do with us being good and virtuous people in and of ourselves. Maybe we're partially to credit for our salvation, which then makes us better than those who aren't saved. So then we don't despair, but we're filled with pride and self-admiration. But what we need to consider and see here in Romans 8 is that God is not a mama-tried kind of God. God isn't merely trying to save his people. God is saving his people. He does save his people. He will save his people because in eternity past, he has saved his people. In eternity past, before the creation of the universe, God decreed that each and every single one of his people would be saved. And that's, that's kind of our, our big idea this morning, that before creation, before creation, God predestined each of his people for salvation in Christ. Before creation, God predestined each of his people for salvation in Christ. We're going to unpack that big idea by looking at the principle, the problems, and the practicality of predestination. The principle, the problems, and the practicality of predestination. So first, we just want to kind of explain what this even means, predestination. So let's explain it. The principle of predestination. Now, to begin with, we, we need to realize that this word predestination is a biblical word. You know, some Christians might sometimes say that they, they don't believe in predestination, and that's a problem. Uh, as a Christian, you've got to believe in predestination in some way, shape, or form, because the word is right here in the Bible multiple times. You have to believe in predestination in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes in the Bible, the word predestination is used to talk about certain events being predestined. For, exa uh, for example, you can look at Acts 4, 27, 28. There, the local church in Jerusalem is is praying together, and they speak of Christ's crucifixion, and Herod's choices, and Pontius Pilate's choices, and all the conspiracies of the Jews and the Gentiles against Christ as being predestined by the hand and plan of God. These events were predestined by God, and therefore they took place. But then sometimes this word predestined is used to speak of God's special choosing of his people. In other words, it's, it's used to speak of God's election of his people. That's another word that the scriptures use as a synonym for this uh, particular use of the word predestined in our text this morning. The word election, but before creation, God elects or chooses or predestines each of his people for salvation in Christ. Now you, as you can imagine, there are different views on this particular topic. Okay, not everyone in Christianity agrees on this subject of predestination or election. And, and uh, there are genuine brothers and sisters who have disagreements about this. And the best-known kind of debate 
uh, on this particular subject between Christians is between Arminians, those who uh, agree with the teaching of a man named Jacob Arminius on this subject, and Christians called, uh, often called Calvinists who agree with the teachings of John Calvin on the subject, although Calvin was hardly the first person uh, to ever teach his particular view of the subject. Arminians believe in what's called conditional election. Go to the next slide for me. Uh, Arminians believe in conditional election. Um, and, and we'll explain that in a moment. Calvinists believe in what's called unconditional election. And now to put our cards on the table, I'm just going to tell you, our church's official teaching on this particular subject is in agreement with John Calvin and others who taught it before him, like St. Augustine and Tom Aquinas on the subject. And, and let me say, if you're someone who disagrees with our church's teaching on this particular subject, welcome, we love you, we don't want you to go anywhere, we don't want to run you off, we want you here, we want you here as a member, please understand that. But the conditional election view is the view that, that is often associated with a, a group of Arminians, with a group called Arminians, and it goes like this. Before the creation of the world, God looked down the corridors of future human history and he saw those who would respond in faith to the gospel, and thus he chose them. He predestined them. He elected them for salvation. You see, God's election of believers is based on the condition of their choosing him. Uh, and, and they actually use our particular text this morning, Romans 8, 28-30, as a proof text for that particular view. Verse 29 says this, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. They say, see, it wasn't that God unconditionally chose us to be saved, but that he foreknew our future choice to be saved and thus chose us based on that condition. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Okay. Now, immediately, you might be seeing some, some problems with that particular view. Uh, and there are many, but one such blazingly obvious problem is this. It completely undermines what the word predestined even means in the first place. Okay, the word translated as predestined literally means to decide beforehand, to decide beforehand. And by beforehand, we mean before creation in eternity past. We see this in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. We read it earlier. We sang it earlier. Uh, this is another text which speaks of God's predestination and election. There the apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, listen, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When did this choice and decision take place? Before the foundation of of the world, whose will did it take place according to? According to God's will, not ours. Our choice to repent and place our faith in Christ is a consequence of his choosing and predestining work, not vice versa. Another text which testifies to this reality is Romans 9, 15 to 16, just the very next chapter in Romans. Um, here again, we see that God is the one who decides beforehand, not us. Um, Paul quotes Moses, or uh, quotes uh, God speaking to Moses in Exodus 33, and he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. On whom does God's merciful choice and predestination and election depend? Not on human will. 
not on our choice. Instead, it depends wholly and solely on God who has mercy. But then moreover, the the Arminian position also misunderstands this word for new here. Uh, This word for new. They believe that this word for new speaks of God's foreseeing the faith and repentance of believers in future human history. But notice that the text does not say that God foresaw certain events. It doesn't say that God foreknew certain events. It doesn't say that he foresaw the choices of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Notice it says that he foreknew people. He foreknew people, those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. He foreknew people. It doesn't say he foreknew choices. It doesn't say that he foresaw faith. It says that he foreknew people. Now that's significant because of the way that the Bible usually uses this word no in this way. And this is, this is a word, this word no, used in this way, implies covenantal love and affection and relationship and intimacy. Think about going all the way back to Genesis 4.1. When God wants to speak, when he wants to communicate, and the way that Adam and Eve engaged in this covenantal act of marital union, what did he say? He said that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Okay, now that's significant, again, because the way that the Bible will regularly speak of God knowing his people in this way. Think about Amos 3.2. This is a text that we looked at just in this past year, uh, not too long ago. In it, God says to his people, you only have I known, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. What's he saying? He's saying that they alone are his covenant people. They have a special and intimate relationship with him like a wife does with her husband. And that's just one example. There are many, the the Bible repeatedly uses this word no like this to speak of God's special relationship and love for his people. Now think about Paul's use of this word here in Romans 8 within this biblical context of the word no. What's, What's he saying? He's saying that Christian, before you were even born, before the creation of the universe, God looked at you and said, unconditionally i love him i love her i i want you i want specifically you to be mine forever he set his effect before you even existed you were in the mind and heart of god as an object of desire and love and affection so much so that he decided beforehand that all things in this created order would work together for your salvation so that you would belong to him and he would belong to you forever and ever he unconditionally elected each and every single one of his people that's what these words foreknow and predestined mean here and now as a consequence of that that's why you're called and born again and justified and one day glorified because God chose you because he foreknew you because he predestined you because he elected you why we just saw in Romans 9 not because of any foreseen merit not as an act of human will or exertion but out of his mere mercy out of his abundant compassion out of his matchless grace he chose you before you did anything good or bad he chose you one of my favorite uh living authors marilyn robinson she she writes these wonderful novels gilead uh home 
uh, Lila, and she, she just came out with one recently called Jack, and, and Jack uh, is, is a, a, young, a man who grew up in a, in a household who taught Calvin's view on this subject, and, and he's kind of pursuing this Methodist woman. He wants to court her, and he wants to, to marry her, and, and so he's kind of pursuing her, and they're talking about this subject of predestination, and she's got some problems with it, and she goes, I just don't understand that, and he says this. He says, it's really pretty straightforward, salvation by grace alone it just begins earlier for us than for other people in the deep womb of time in fact by his secret will and purpose that's right that is predestination that's election and and you might be familiar with the question when were you saved has anyone ever asked you that when were you saved in a very appropriate way you you might just say uh the the time of your conversion for me that was summer of 2008 when I was converted, and I began to place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. I could say 2008, or you could say 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem on Mount Golgotha. That's when I was saved. Jesus said, it is finished. My salvation was accomplished an accomplished fact on that date. But in a very real way, as we look at the Apostle Paul's teaching, this, the teaching of the New Testament concerning this doctrine of predestination, this doctrine of election, we could very well just as say, I was saved before the foundation of the world in the deep womb of time by the mere mercy of God. That's the principle of predestination. That's what we mean when we talk about predestination. And we could say a whole lot more about that, but for the sake of time, I, I, I won't. Now, I'm not under any illusions regarding the controversy surrounding this, this subject. Many genuine Christians have many problems with this teaching on predestination. And while you know, we don't have time to address all of them, we have to address at least a few major problems people have with this teaching. And so, look with me at, at the problems of predestination. Some of the problems people have with predestination. First, this is a big one. Doesn't this mean that God creates some people just to send them to hell? In other words, if, if God chose each of his people for salvation in eternity past, and not every human being is saved, then that means that all those who aren't saved are those that God didn't choose, and yet he still created them. That means that God created some people just to be sent to hell for all of eternity. And that just doesn't seem right to some of us. Of course, in all reality, the, the question we should be asking is how on earth God could be so kind and so gracious so as to save some of us. That's the real miracle here. Because in all reality, we all deserve eternity in hell because of our sin and rebellion against God. It's amazing that he would even choose to save some. That's marvelous. But then what's more you know, is that really the Arminian position here doesn't actually solve this problem. You see, the Arminian position says that God foreknew the choices of those who had placed their faith in Christ and thus chose them. But then that also means that God foreknew the fact that those who wouldn't trust in Christ would still reject him, and yet he created them anyways. And thus, even in the Arminian position, God still creates some people that are going to be sent to hell for all of eternity. And so it doesn't really solve the problem, does it? But regardless, this, this is a real struggle for some of us and so it might be of some comfort for, for you to know that the Bible actually answers this question. The Bible actually deals with this question. This is a question that the Apostle Paul actually deals with and anticipates in Romans 9. He's talking about election and predestination. In Romans 9, 19 to 23, the Apostle Paul answers this very rejection. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
But he responds, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for for glory? In other words, first things first. You need to know that God is God and you are not. It is God's prerogative to make such choices, not yours. Just as it's a potter's prerogative to do what they wish with their clay. And you know, I, I, I think that, that the, the Apostle Paul goes here first in all reality, because in all reality, none of us will ever be satisfied with any answers to this question until we come to terms with the fact that God is God and we are not. In order to be comfortable with, with the scripture's teaching about predestination, we need to be really comfortable with the godness of God and the smallness of humanity. But the next, the second problem that many have is, is this. Doesn't this remove human guilt and responsibility? Doesn't this remove human guilt and responsibility? In other words, if God chose some of his people to be saved, for those who aren't, how can they be held responsible for their refusal to be saved? How can God consider them guilty in their refusal of, of Christ? And how can non-believers be held responsible for their rejection of God and the gospel if they didn't choose, if God didn't choose them? To sum it up, how, basically, how can God's absolute sovereignty and predestination and human responsibility coexist? And of course, both God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility are both explicitly taught in Scripture. Those who reject God and his commands and his gospel will be held responsible for it both now and in the age to come. And Charles Spurgeon, in his autobiography, he seeks to deal with this very issue. He says this, he says that God predestines and yet man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They're believed to be inconsistent and contradictory contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. I do not believe that they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil, but they certainly shall be one in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth doth spring. In other words, these two realities may well go beyond our ability to comprehend, but that does not mean that they contradict each other. The fact that God is absolutely sovereign and the fact that human beings are morally responsible for their choices is not a contradiction. It doesn't contradict reason, but it is a paradox. It does go beyond our ability to reason. And thus, when it comes to such divine mysteries, of which there are several in our faith, Our job is not to accuse God or excuse ourselves, but to place our hands over our mouths and trust the one, as Spurgeon said, from whom all all truth doth spring. 
The third problem many have with this doctrine of election that we ought to consider is this. What if I'm not elect? What if I'm not elect? And you know, I, I've talked with enough people about this subject to know that often other objections are, are more, you know, more intellectual. But this one is, is a real fear that some people have. It's, it's not merely intellectual. It's, it's often deeply personal. What if I'm not elect? What if God didn't predestine me for salvation? And some people are even tortured by this question. Wondering that, that if they try to follow Christ for their entire lives, if in the end they still might hear that God did not choose them unless they are not saved. And if that's a question you struggle with when it comes to this, I would say to you two things. First, you know, I, I think that most often this particular struggle comes because, because we try to discover the will of God in election and predestination apart from Jesus Christ. Okay, John Calvin once said this, he, he said, we cannot find assurance of our election in God the Father if we conceive of him as severed from the Son. Right? And, and, and one time, somebody actually asked Calvin how he knew he was elect, and this is how he answered this question, it's very insightful. He said, I answer that Christ is more than a thousand testimonies to me. God begins with himself when he sees fit to elect us, but he will have us begin with Christ so that we may know that we are numbered among his peculiar people. So I want you to notice something about, you know, the, 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 most of the texts that, that we talk about when we talk about predestination and election, most of the texts that we've read this morning talk about it in relation to Christ, don't they? So here in Romans 8, 29, we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ephesians 1, 4, we were chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. Ephesians 1, 5, we were predestined for adoption as sons through Christ. Jesus says himself in John 6, 37, in relation to this subject of predestination, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, God's predestinating work is done so that all those chosen may be given as a love gift to the Son, and all those given as a love gift to the Son will never, ever, ever, ever be cast out. All this to say, if you're wondering if you are elect, if you're wondering if you, were, if you have been predestined to be saved, ask yourself this question. Do you believe the gospel? Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Do you rely on him for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? If you answer yes, then take great comfort, Christian. You have been chosen by God. You are elect. He predestined you. He foreknew you before the foundation of the world to be saved. And take great care as well to not try to gaze into the mystery of God's predestinating work except through the window of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing I would tell you. The second thing I would tell you is this. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Apostle Peter tells us to do this. In, in 2 Peter 1.10, he says, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And what he's saying here is that, yes, God has called and elected those of us in Christ. 
But that should not cause us to grow lethargic and to be passive in the Christian life. And, and if we grow lethargic and passive in the Christian life, that's often what leads to us doubting and struggling with assurance when it comes to our salvation. Because we, we grow lethargic and, and passive, we begin to tolerate and excuse sin in our lives. But, you know, pursuing virtue, pursuing righteousness, per, pursuing holiness and obedience and good works reinforces assurance. It helps us grow in assurance and helps confirm the fact that we are God's predestined children. Of course, our good works are not the basis of our assurance, God's grace is. But it is a supplemental assurance, and it helps us grow more confident in God's election of us. So I'd encourage you to pursue obedience to God's word in effort to confirm your calling and election. If you're struggling with the question of whether or not you're elect, look to Christ. First and foremost, look to Christ. And second, seek to make your calling and election sure with a life of obedience and a life of holiness. Now, of course, these are not the only problems that we face when we consider this this teaching this biblical teaching regarding predestination but but those are a few big ones that we must consider but you know now moving on we we should consider another problem that many people have with this teaching this conversation about predestination and election as a whole and that's that it's just not very useful it's not very useful the 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 questions regarding predestination a lot of people believe that they distract christians from obedience and from mission and that it unnecessarily divides christians and that it'd be better if we just didn't waste our time even considering it however that's just simply not true first of all the bible talks about it so we have to consider it but then moreover it is incredibly useful predestination is an incredibly practical subject just like all the biblical doctrines that we believe in it truly affects our hearts and our minds and the ways in which we live our lives so look with me lastly at the practicality of predestination first we should recognize that that predestination this doctrine of predestination helps humility it helps humility unfortunately you wouldn't immediately come to this conclusion if you went on twitter and looked at the way a lot of people who hold to this biblical doctrine of predestination talk to and treat one another. There's many proud and pompous and condescending people who believe in this doctrine of predestination. Stay off Twitter, kids. And of course, you know, such a disposition is never befitting of any Christian. But what makes this all the more grievous and confusing is that this doctrine of election ought to make us the most humble and self-effacing of all Christians. As one theologian put it, he said that predestination undercuts all confidence in works righteousness and lays bare the source of human salvation. It is the negation of all merits and places salvation solely in the mercy of God. It means that salvation is rescue and not achievement. You see, if, if ever there was a doctrine to make us more humble and less proud, more self-effacing and less pretentious, it should be this one. Because it means that we were so utterly helpless in and of ourselves that God had to choose us even before we were born. It means that we bring nothing whatsoever into this relationship with God, save the sin that made it necessary. We contributed nothing at all. He gave everything. Spurgeon tells the the story of when he reached this conclusion, uh, he says hey, he was having a conversation with himself one night, which is rather strange, but he says this, one week night when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? And I sought the Lord, but how did you come to seek the Lord? 
The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence upon my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? Then I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. You see, you can, if you can, you can trace all the secondary means and instruments through which God saved you. But when you come to the very bottom, if you follow it all the way down, what you find is pure, matchless, 200 proof grace. God's grace. A salvation which is truly rescue and not achievement, and that will truly make you humble. Next, it not only helps humility, but it encourages evangelism. And of course, a a, a charge often laid to those who believe in God's unconditional election and predestination is that it it makes believers passive when it comes to evangelism. And, And undoubtedly, there have been some who hold to this doctrine in the past who have pursued a kind of Christianity without missions and evangelism. But I want you to see that the scripture actually frames this doctrine as encouraging evangelism. We see this this illustrated in in Acts 18.10. In Acts 18, the Apostle Paul is serving as a missionary in various places like Macedonia and in Corinth. And when Paul goes to Corinth, the, the Lord speaks to Paul one night in a dream and he tells him this. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you. Listen, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, Corinth had yet to be evangelized. Those those who were there had yet to repent and believe the gospel. And yet the Lord encourages Paul to go and evangelize by telling him that there are many who are in that city who are his people, who are chosen by him, who are his lost elect, but who will respond in faith and repentance to the preaching of the gospel. I want you, do you see how that encourages evangelism? It guarantees success with all of God's elect. And of course, we, we, we shouldn't try to figure out who the lost elect are and, and only try to evangelize him. That's That's God's knowledge alone. We simply and liberally sow gospel seed and we expect a harvest, a certain harvest for some, for those who are God's elect. And what that means is that you can evangelize with both confidence and humility. You don't need to have the answers to every question. You don't need to have it figured all out. You don't need to to sink into tactics of manipulation like some Christians have. You can just simply and humbly and confidently pursue obedience to God's commands for evangelism and missions, knowing that it ultimately depends on God to save and not you. Predestination encourages evangelism in this way. And then lastly, it abounds assurance. It abounds assurance. I think it's really Paul's point here in Romans 8, 29 to 30. This is this foreknowing and predestinating work of God in eternity past absolutely guarantees the sure salvation of each of his people in eternity future. For those whom he predestined, he also called the domino falls. And those whom he called, he also justified the other domino falls. And those whom he justified, he also glorified the, the last domino falls. Your ultimate salvation, Christian, 
is rooted in God's eternal choice of you. Therefore, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot fall away. You cannot be condemned. You cannot be unchosen because God's callings and gifts are irreversible. You are and will be saved. You can rest assured of that. And this is even true in a season like this. And this last year, like, like we've had, I, I know we've been living through the, the many dangers and toils and snares that we sing about in Amazing Grace, but this Amazing Grace that shows us before the foundation of the world and has thus brought us safely thus far will also inevitably, powerfully, absolutely bring us home. You may be weary. Your spiritual legs may feel weak. Your faith may be wavering. But your ultimate salvation does not rest in human will or exertion. It does not rest in your strength or resolve. Your salvation rests in God's eternal choice of you for salvation in Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not fragile. God's grace is not fragile. God is not fragile. And in fact, you, you actually you can face these dangers and toils and snares with vibrancy and resiliency yourself. Because the reality is that even in these, even in these dangers, toils, and snares, God is at work for your good and your ultimate salvation, even in the difficulties and dangers, even in the trials and tribulations, the sicknesses, the deaths of loved ones, the financial troubles, and all the rest of it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God is at work through it all in order to accomplish your ultimate salvation of you reaching this state of glorification wherein you bear Christ's resemblance perfectly in the age to come. To conform you to the risen Christ in the age to come. That is your ultimate salvation, and that is a certainty. If you are a Christian, all paths lead to that destination. It is a certainty. And we know this because if you follow the logic of our salvation all the way down, what you find is grace. What you find there is God's unchangeable purpose and plan that before creation, God predestined each of his people for salvation in Christ. May we believe this, may we trust it, may we rest in it, and may we live from it always. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this time together. And we give you thanks for your predestinating work that you chose us before the foundation of the world because you know we would never have chosen you in our sin, in our depravity, in our spiritual death unless you chose us. And so we thank you for choosing us. We thank you for saving us. We pray that you would help us to rest in this, to live from it, and to be so confident in, in, in living from it, in evangelizing from it, in, in, in doing good works from it for the sake and glory of your name and for the fame of Jesus in the earth. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.